dew hung on tufts of golden grass, poking up between gray rocks. Clear sky stretched above a steep slope of a narrow river valley, dotted with boulders. With careful steps, a woman and her daughter walked between loose stones. Behind them, a column of wispy smoke spiraled upward, above the ridge of the valley. This morning was a unique occasion. They didn't carry bags or baskets, only small pouches dangling at their hips. Venturing further down the gorge, with no interest in gathering food, they searched for the noble deer of this sacred valley. Walking to the base of a large boulder, the woman studied it carefully, and the teenage girl saw the outline of a horse engraved into one side of the stone. This animal was ancient, made by the first of their people to awaken in this land. With an air of solemnity, the older woman motioned for them to continue. Noting her uncharacteristic stillness, the girl wondered if this attitude was necessary to commune with the spirits. They approached the base of another boulder. This one stood twice their height, and the woman rested her hand on the bare stone and spoke words of contrition. Every spring of her adult life, she had entered this valley of the great deer, whose children her band had hunted during the past year. Every spring, her purpose was the same, to appease and renew the animal spirit. She knew of tribes in northeastern lands who had abandoned the way of their ancestors, and she had no intention of doing the same. Pulling a sharp, pointed stone knife from her pouch, she began etching the outline of a deer into the boulder. A triangular head, round belly, and short legs emerged from the stone. Gradually, its body was filled with dozens of long lines. By the time she had completed the drawing, her hands and forearms were throbbing from gripping the decorated wooded handle of the knife. But she didn't notice the pain. Her mind was elsewhere, waiting for a sense that the spirits were at peace and listening to wisdoms spoken by the spiritual leaders from whom she was descended. As a warm sensation of calm enveloped her, she touched the boulder once more, spoke in gratitude, and instructed her daughter to do the same. This woman lived 12,000 years ago, in the Coa Valley of Portugal, a site with dozens of decorated boulders. Her tribe was one of the last in Europe to follow the Upper Paleolithic tradition of etching animals in stone. Welcome to Our Prehistory, Episode 22, 
younger Dryas of southern Europe. Earth was undergoing an inevitable transformation from the extreme cold of the last glacial maximum to the dramatically warmer Holocene. This transition began 19,000 years ago and was controlled by predictable cyclical changes in our planet's orbit and the tilt of its axis. The amount of solar radiation that reached our planet was increasing. But prehistoric climate was affected by more than just astronomical variables. Complex atmospheric, terrestrial, and oceanic systems also played a role. As a result, the inexorable global warming became a volatile process of dramatic climatic instability, with which humans in Europe had to contend. Last time, we learned about one important climatic fluctuation, the rapid increase in temperatures in the northern hemisphere around 14,800 years ago, which led to the 2,000-year-long bowling alarod. During this phase, a wave of human migration swept through Europe, and the hunter-gatherer way of life underwent a widespread transformation known as azillionization. At the end of the bowling alarod, about 12,800 years ago, another abrupt shift in climate hit the continent, but this time it got colder. For about 1,200 years, people experienced a period known as the Younger Dryas, a major interruption in the process of global warming and the last gasp of the Ice Age. Today, we will explore this fascinating climatic reversal and the response of human society in Europe to the return of glacial conditions. The Younger Dryas is one of the most well-studied prehistoric climatic events due to its recency and its impact on the course of human history. Its timing and impact across the planet have been well documented through a variety of climatic records, including data from ice cores, lake sediments, stalactites and stalagmites, and even tree rings of logs preserved under volcanic ash. But the first evidence for the Younger Dryas came from the leaves of a small tundra plant, whose scientific name is Dryas octopetala. This white and yellow wildflower in the rose family is mostly found today north of the Arctic Circle. But during glacial periods of Earth's history, its range moved southward, leaving behind proof of its presence. In the late 1800s, scientists in southern Scandinavia found Dryas leaves preserved in pits dug to collect clay, allowing them to distinguish multiple layers of sediment that had formed during cold periods. They named three of these as Younger Dryas, Older Dryas, and Oldest Dryas. By the way, the names Bowling and Alarod come from two of these locations in Denmark that provided paleoclimatic information. As other types of data accumulated, it became clear that these three Dryas periods occurred between 16,000 and 11,000 years ago. More precise information came from polar ice, 
which contains bubbles of trapped prehistoric air. Drilled from the ice sheets of Antarctica and Greenland, some of these cores reach three kilometers in length. Through the measurement of ratios of oxygen isotopes, they provide precise records of temperature going back hundreds of thousands of years. Based on this data, we know that the Younger Dryas began in Greenland about 12,850 years ago and ended about 11,670 years ago. Despite the interest this event attracts from modern scientists, ice cores reveal that the Younger Dryas was not exceptional. For hundreds of thousands of years, many similar cold snaps, lasting one or two millennia, beset the northern hemisphere, including within periods of long-term global warming. During the first 200 years of the Younger Dryas, air temperature over Greenland dropped by about 7 degrees Celsius, with half of that cooling occurring during the first three decades. But importantly, other climate records show that the impact was not felt as strongly in other parts of the world. In the tropics, changes in temperature were mild, although precipitation declined in some regions. For example, the Asian monsoon weakened, bringing less moisture from the Indian Ocean onto land. Interestingly, substantial cooling only seems to have affected the northern hemisphere, including Europe, northern Asia, and North America. Ice cores from Antarctica and records from other locations in the southern hemisphere show gradual warming at the time. This phenomenon, where the northern half of the planet cools while the southern half warms and vice versa, was common during the past 100,000 years. Referred to as the bipolar seesaw, it has been documented in ice core data occurring over short timescales, like the 1,200-year-long Younger Dryas. The cause of this climatic reversal is not fully understood, but it seems to have been triggered in the northern half of the planet. Greenland, Europe, and Asia began cooling about a 100 years before Antarctica started warming. One recent and controversial theory, whose evidence is still being evaluated, proposes that meteorite impacts initiated this cooling. But the theory that garners the most support from experts proposes that the Younger Dryas was caused by large amounts of freshwater from melting glaciers pouring into the North Atlantic Ocean all at once. The possible source of this meltwater was the massive Lake Agassiz, which formed over Manitoba and Ontario as Canadian ice sheets melted during the Bowling Alarod. Larger than the North American Great Lakes combined, Lake Agassiz may have grown until it drained through the St. Lawrence River in a catastrophic flood, although evidence of this event is ambiguous. An enormous input of cold, fresh water would have altered the temperature and salinity of the ocean, and may have caused an important oceanic current to weaken, which today brings warm water from the tropics to the North Atlantic. So if this glacial meltwater theory is correct, the cause of the cold Younger Dryas may have been the global warming that preceded it. 
The shutdown of this Atlantic current, which is connected to a wider system of global oceanic circulation, had many knock-on effects. Warmth that once went into the northern hemisphere remained in the south, eventually warming Antarctica. Less water evaporated from the North Atlantic, reducing rainfall in Europe. Sea ice around the Arctic expanded southward, altering atmospheric currents, like the jet stream and trade winds. But over time, the current of warm water in the Atlantic gathered strength once again, leading to the end of the Younger Dryas. By 11,590 years ago, temperatures in the Northern Hemisphere were once again as warm as during the Bowling Alarod. This was the third major and abrupt climatic shift in Europe in the past 3,000 years. Volatility on this scale tested the resilience of the final Paleolithic societies. This was a level of instability that people of the Holocene have never faced. The impact of the Younger Dryas on Europe was substantial. Across the continent, pollen samples show a reduction in the quantity of trees and an increase of shrubs, small plants, and grasses adapted to cold and dryness. Yet, the Younger Dryas was not as cold as the last glacial maximum. Humans did not disappear from the northern half of the continent as they had 12,000 years earlier. A recent study of prehistoric plant remains from across Europe shows that the cooling primarily manifested in winter temperatures, which decreased by 4 to 14 degrees Celsius depending on the region. Summer temperatures, on the other hand, were mostly unaffected by the Younger Dryas, creating a much more pronounced seasonality than during the Bowling Alarod or Holocene. The drop in winter temperatures was more severe in the northern half of the continent, especially close to the Atlantic Ocean. Intriguingly, this geographic distinction is mirrored by cultural trends. Unlike the Bowling Alarod, when most of the continent was affected by azillianization, during the Younger Dryas, only Northern Europe experienced significant cultural change. Today, we will delve into the more consistent traditions of Epigravedian, Epimagdalenian, and Azillian hunter-gatherers of the Warm South. Next time, we'll turn to those in the harsher northern lands, who were forced by circumstance to abandon ancestral traditions. The southern half of Europe, including the Iberian, Italian, and Balkan peninsulas, experienced mild environmental changes during the Younger Dryas. Woodlands that had formed during the Bowling Alarod were replaced in places by open landscapes. Some temperate trees didn't survive the cold winters of the Younger Dryas, and where they died, pine trees or grasses grew up. Although these changes in southern Europe were widespread, as seen in the pollen records of Portugal, Spain, Italy, and Ukraine, they were not dramatic. In the southern Alps, the tree line only moved down the mountain by 200 meters elevation, whereas forest had risen 1,200 meters during the Bowling Alarod. 
the proportion of land covered by trees declined, but in northern Italy did not fully undo the woodland expansion of the previous 2,000 years. Since forests only declined marginally, the resources this ecosystem provided were still available to bands. Archaeologists point to several lines of evidence that the survival strategies of hunter-gatherers remained unchanged across southern Europe with the transition to the Younger Dryas. People continued hunting the same animals that they had during the bowling alarod, especially deer, ibex, and rabbit. Based on the shells and types of stone found in their camps, movement of these nomadic bands across coasts plains and hills, followed ancestral patterns. From the beaches of Greece, Sicily, and Gibraltar in the south, to the Pyrenees, Alps, and Danube River in the north, the approach to making tools remained the same. Limited crafting of bone implements and short stone tools and points made with simplified napping techniques. Short scrapers, including the thumbnail variety, remained one of the most common stone elements of their toolkits. Cultural continuity in southern Europe can also be seen in hunting weapons. The small, curved-backed stone arrow points that had spread through Europe during the bowling alarod remained common weapons of hunter-gatherers in Iberia. Along the Mediterranean coast of this peninsula, they became even more prominent. To the east, Curve-backed points and micro-gravettes remained the most frequently used arrowheads. Azilian traditions also persisted in northern Iberia and the Pyrenees of southern France, where fishing spears and harpoons made from antler remained popular. Despite climatic and environmental changes, the technological system that had emerged during the bowling alarod remained effective and resilient during the Younger Dryas. In southern Europe, there was no reversal of azilianization, or return to more upper Paleolithic customs. However, there is one place in southern Europe where archaeologists have identified a significant impact of the Younger Dryas on human life, the Italian Alps. Last time, we saw the complex organization of forager societies in these mountains, following a logistical mobility system during the bowling alarod. They had base camps in mountain valleys with rich deposits, including stockpiles of raw material, ornaments, art, and burials. But during the Younger Dryas, these complex camps with diverse animal remains disappeared people were less likely to transport stone long distances through these mountains. Interestingly, the colder temperatures of the Younger Dryas did not prevent people from living in these mountains. Their camps have been found up to 1,500 meters elevation, just as during the Bowling Alarod. But environmental change must have limited important resources here after 12,800 years ago and the people of the Southern Alps were forced to reorganize their society, likely only visiting the mountains on short summer trips. The stone tools left behind in these alpine camps revealed a continued simplification of stone working, 
but these changes preceded the Younger Dryas by about 400 years, and were part of the gradual azillionization of the wider Mediterranean region, another step in the larger cultural transition from the Upper Paleolithic to the Mesolithic. Due to the persistence of traditions in toolmaking, hunting weapons, and art, archaeologists used the same names to identify cultures in southern Europe during the Bowling Alarod and the Younger Dryas. In northern Iberia, Azilian culture continued. In southern Iberia, the Epimagdalenian, and to the east, the late Epigravedian. The Younger Dryas witnessed an uncommon event for the Paleolithic, a clear cultural break between the regions of Cantabria in Spain and central France. About 12,200 years ago, the Azilian ended in most of France, but continued for more than a thousand years in Cantabria. This schism is indicative of a general north-south division across Europe, which distinguishes it from the east-west separation of the last glacial maximum. Social connections and tribal identities of Europeans were being rearranged, continuing a process that began with the migration of the Epigravedians and the disintegration of the Magdalenian world. Continuation of the traditions of the Bowling Alarod is also evident in items of symbolic importance. A zillion pebbles painted with simple dots and lines remained in use across large parts of southern Europe, including Italy and northern Spain. Also, the coexistence of abstract engravings with drawings of animals continued across Mediterranean cultures. For instance, at Romanelli Cave in southern Italy, dozens of stone plaques were engraved. Importantly, this art was found in archaeological layers dating to both the Bowling Alarod and Younger Dryas, without any major changes between periods. The images created by artists at this cave belong to the wider late Epigravedian tradition. Some depicted animals, especially aurochs. This dangerous horned ancestor of the domesticated cow must have borne a special significance to the people living on the Italian peninsula at this time, even though it was never a primary target of hunting. In addition to animals, the artists of Romanelli and several other nearby caves developed a specific style of abstract art with sets of straight, evenly spaced parallel lines, often meeting at right angles to each other. This complex motif was engraved by skilled hands across the entire face of stone tablets. Along with distinctive stone tools, including tiny round scrapers, Romanellian art reveals the formation of a network of bands with a strong local identity in the southeastern extreme of the Italian peninsula. This society survived for more than a thousand years despite the climatic instability brought about by the Younger Dryas. Symbolic continuity and social complexity are also reflected in mortuary practices on the Italian peninsula. One of the most spectacular Paleolithic burial sites in all of Europe is Arene Candide, a coastal cave 
near the Italian-French border. Here, the bones of a stunning 22 individuals have been discovered and dated to the younger Dryas. Arene Candide was a cemetery, perhaps the oldest in Europe that we know about, at 12,800 years old. People returned to a specific cavern within this large cave system for hundreds of years to bury some members of their society. Arene Candide was an impressive landmark found in a cliff face and accessible by climbing a 300-meter-tall sand dune. You may remember this cave as the resting place of an elaborately adorned isolated burial of the Gravedian, nicknamed the Young Prince. Within this cavern, the cemetery was marked by a set of moose antlers. Some of the human skeletons were found in a position suggesting formal burial in a grave, whereas others were represented only by a pile of a limited number of bones. This suggests the coexistence of primary and secondary burial practices. Some people were carried into this cave soon after dying, whereas others were first laid to rest somewhere else before some of their bones were brought to Arene Candide. Ten men, three women, and eight children have been identified. In the formal graves, people were laid to rest on their back on top of a layer of red ochre powder. Graves were filled with the belongings of the deceased, including stone tools, bone spear points, and jewelry made from shell beads and deer teeth along with a wide variety of animal bones. These customs resemble those of graves dating to the bowling alarod. Interestingly, all the child burials at Arene Candide included small vertebrae from squirrel tails, probably reflecting the presence of a garment only worn by children. Especially notable are painted pebbles found in the hundreds around the cemetery some of which were used to prepare and apply red ochre. Some pebbles were intentionally broken after having been painted, with one half kept by the living and the other half left with the deceased. Other pebbles that were left intact were painted in the Azilian style, suggesting that here they served some ceremonial or spiritual function. Strong continuity in symbolic customs is also seen in Iberia, where stylized drawings of animals, deer in particular, persisted with the societies of the younger Dryas. This simplified way of depicting deer emerged during the Bowling Halarod as an evolution of Magdalenian art. Concrete evidence for the persistence of this tradition into the younger Dryas exists in northern Portugal in the Coa Valley. 85 stone tablets dated by association with other archaeological remains were mostly engraved with images of deer, but occasionally also ibex, horse, and humans. The animals were drawn according to a relatively consistent style, with straight lines defining the bodies and legs, and few anatomical details aside from antlers. A special quirk of this style is that the interior of the animals was filled with dozens of lines 
which unlike Magdalenian art, did not attempt to create a realistic sense of depth. This stylized image of deer can be found engraved on many large boulders in the Koa Valley, as well as on tablets and cave walls along the Mediterranean coast of Spain, suggesting a widespread use of this convention during the Younger Dryas. Across southern Europe, drawings of animals, whether aurochs in Italy or deer in Iberia, marked the final manifestation of an Upper Paleolithic artistic heritage, which had already disappeared from most of Europe and would soon fade away here as well. Although Southern Europe did not witness any dramatic cultural changes during the cold Younger Dryas, there was one new stone tool technology that appeared across most of this region. These were geometric microliths, shaped either as triangles, trapezoids, or semicircles. The semicircles are sometimes called lunates because of their resemblance to a half moon. Usually less than 3 centimeters long, these microliths remained a small component of toolkits, less than 10% of stone tools, but they marked an important step toward the Mesolithic. Geometric microliths had already been invented several times throughout prehistory, including in southern Africa 65,000 years ago and eastern Africa 50,000 years ago. During the Upper Paleolithic of Europe, by far the most common type of microlith were bladelets, which were roughly rectangular, but geometrics were also occasionally made. For example, scalene triangles were popular at times during the Magdalenian. By the time of the Holocene, tiny trapezoids, lunates, and triangles would become defining ubiquitous elements of Mesolithic culture in Europe. The introduction of geometric microliths during the Younger Dryas makes sense within the context of azillianization, when people were making smaller stone tools with less sophisticated techniques. By taking irregular bladelets and flakes, toolmakers could snap or nap them to create geometrics, allowing quick, standardized production of slicing and piercing tools from small pieces of chipped stone. Geometrics are traditionally thought of as elements of hunting weapons, but their function has been proven to be variable. A study of fractures and use wear on trapezoids used in northern Italy during the Younger Dryas reveals that forgers used some as cutting tools and others as barbs on the sides of arrows. In France, on the other hand, trapezoids were solely used as points at the end of arrows. This evidence suggests that geometric microliths were versatile and slotted into notches and grooves of wooden or bone handles to make a variety of weapons and implements. Not only was the adoption of geometrics part of the transition toward a more Mesolithic way of life, but it also tells a story of technological spread across the continent. Interestingly, geometric microliths may not have been a local invention but an import from neighboring cultures in southwestern Asia. Lunate, trapezoid, and triangle microliths were in use by hunter-gatherers in the Levant 
Anatolia, the Zagros Mountains, and the Southern Caucasus regions before the start of the Bowling Alarod. At these ancient Middle Eastern camps, these tiny objects were by far the most common tool produced, and remained so in the Younger Dryas. Geometrics like these first appear in the southeastern regions of Europe at the start of the Bowling Alarod, specifically among groups living north of the Black Sea, on the Pontic steppe of Ukraine. Among these societies, the impact of azillianization had been muted. In the absence of substantial forest growth during the warming of the Bowling Alarod, foragers here continued making long blades and hunting grassland herd animals, like horse and saiga antelope. On the Pontic steppe, geometric microliths suddenly appeared after 14,700 years ago and composed more than half of the tools left in these camps. Experts propose that this abrupt shift in stone-working customs was due to the arrival of people from southwestern Asia, migrating northward around the Black Sea as the climate warmed during the Bowling Alarod. The spread of geometrics through the rest of southern Europe was much less sudden, appearing as a minor component of toolkits of the Balkan Peninsula slightly later than on the Pontic Steppe. The fact that this new tool was merely a supplement to the established Epigravetian repertoire suggests a scenario of cultural diffusion, where the concept and practice of making triangles, trapezoids, and lunates spread by word of mouth from hunter-gatherers in Anatolia. Also, based on the genetic evidence we currently have, it seems that the spread of this technology across the rest of the Mediterranean region came after the major Epigravetian migration around 14,000 years ago. The next step in the spread of geometrics came towards the end of the Bowling Alarod, around 13,200 years ago, when triangles appeared in northern Italy and lunates in southern Italy. The triangle-shaped microliths made by people in southern Europe tended to be isosceles with two equal-length sides, unlike the asymmetrical Magdalenian scaling triangles. Next, at the start of the Younger Dryas, people in northern Italy shift from a preference for triangles to trapezoids, and even further west on the Mediterranean coast of Spain, lunates and triangles make their first appearance. During the Holocene, they would be adopted across most of the rest of the continent, including northward. The spread of geometrics from Southwest Asia into Europe can be compared to another prehistoric event. The appearance of bladelets in Europe around 42,000 years ago, as Homo sapiens groups migrated from the Near East at the beginning of the Oryg Nation. Neither of these phenomena, the spread of bladelets or geometrics, was instantaneous, each taking several thousand years to reach across Europe. But both resulted in continent-wide changes that defined major archaeological transitions and point toward a repeated impact of Near Eastern culture upon Europe throughout prehistory.
the end of the Younger Dryas in the Northern Hemisphere was even more abrupt than its start. Layers of ice, lake sediments, and cave minerals from Greenland, Spain, and Germany record a simultaneous increase in temperature over a period of 90 years, which more than reversed the cooling of the Younger Dryas. By 11,590 years ago, Europe enjoyed a climate comparable to that of the Bowling Alarod. During the first thousand years of the Holocene that followed, temperatures would continue to rise, but at a slower pace, and then remain incredibly stable for more than 10,000 years. Interestingly, the cultural transition from final Paleolithic to Mesolithic did not occur immediately with the beginning of the Holocene. It would take another 600 years for people in southern Europe to adopt practices typical of the Mesolithic, such as a greater use of geometric microliths. Microgravettes remained common arrow points for hunters in Italy until about 11,000 years ago. Similarly, the Azilian of Cantabria, with its curved backed points, and the final Paleolithic cultures of northern Europe, which we will learn about next time, also lasted several hundred years into the Holocene. This delayed cultural reaction to climate change is intriguing. Even though forests expanded dramatically with the end of the Younger Dryas, it may have taken a few centuries before open ecosystems mostly disappeared and forced human societies to adapt. But there may have been another force that caused this lag between climate and culture. That is societal inertia. This idea is related to a larger issue in prehistoric studies. Often, in episodes of our prehistory, I frame the chronology of cultural changes in relation to climate. Although this provides necessary context, it may give the impression that environment was the primary factor influencing the behavior of prehistoric peoples. Some academics prefer to avoid this way of thinking and condemn it as environmental determinism. While it's undeniable that dramatic events like the last glacial maximum and bowling alarod impacted the behavior of hunter-gatherers, other dynamics inherent to human society are thought to have played a role. For example, the creation of ethnic identities contributed to the reinforcement of customs. Many archaeologists believe that the shape of weapon points, knives, and scrapers held important symbolic value, much like ornaments. The highly regional shapes of Solutrean stone points in France and Iberia are a clear example of this. Similar patterns are observed among modern-day hunter-gatherers, who use ethnically differentiated spears and arrows. The ability of an individual to produce these items according to normalized standards could have heightened their social status within their tribe. Dynamics such as these may have contributed to cultural conservatism and the persistence of Paleolithic tools during the first centuries of the Holocene. It's hard to draw definitive conclusions like these about long-extinct societies, but when attempting to understand prehistoric cultural patterns, 
it's a good idea to consider social explanations. A widespread change in the shape of stone tools or bone points might not have been a specific functional adaptation to a changing environment, but instead a shift in the dominant cultural norm due to a disruption of social networks or changes in aesthetic preferences. If we look back on the Upper Paleolithic, we can find dramatic changes in stone tool technology that do not coincide with noticeable environmental changes, such as the shift from the Salutrian to Batagulian, which occurred in the middle of the last glacial maximum. This major change in the approach to making stone tools across France and parts of Iberia may have been driven by social dynamics that are invisible to us today. Even azillianization, which is clearly related to the expansion of forest, can be connected to the disruption of the Magdalenian world by a wave of migration from Southeast Europe. Just like us today, our ancestors were not robots, making purely rational decisions on the most efficient way of living but were shaped by the social landscape they inhabited. In our next episode, we will move to the colder lands of Northern Europe and explore a much different Younger Dryas scenario, full of fascinating cultural changes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron of the show. Your support will allow me to continue bringing you our prehistory.